This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday. We have another week of Journal Club today. This is fun. How are you, Daphne? <laughs> I'm good. How silent. are you holding up, buddy? No, I'm. I'm feeling like you're, you've had a long week on service. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long week. <laughs> we've been procrastinating the board review episodes, which means that we've been pretty much we've been pretty much recording like every day after work. I mean, yeah, after it's... after sign out, and yeah. but it's it's uh, it was kind of neat. We hit the milestone of like 100 board review episodes. That was kind of cool. And, really cool. Uh, yeah. You know, this was like a, this was kind of like a, one of those ideas we had that were like, well, surely this won't work, but let's do it because it was a need that like I had the need personally. So yeah, we started in January mm-hmm. and that was that. And here it is. I mean, we are publishing at a very brisk pace. So yes. that explains the the 100 episodes reach very quickly. But, you know, this was great. And, and thanks to Dr. Martin and Dr. Brodsky for supporting that and helping us in making this happen. Um, and thank you to the audience for keeping us going. Um, but, yeah, it's been a busy, busy week. And, uh, yeah, some, some updates and stuff that we don't really need to talk about on the podcast. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was very excited that we were working on releasing my app to the uh, my my diet mm-hmm. app to the iOS store, which finally happened. So yeah, we'll talk to you guys more about that at some later point. Uh, we have to probably uh, break 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 down a little bit what we're trying to do, what this app does, et cetera, et cetera. But it's cool; it's all very cool. Is there anything else that we needed to talk about? No, not really. No, I think that's it. Hmm. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, then let's not waste any more time. Um, who should I start? You should I start. Like I, I feel like I could start. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first paper that I wanted to, um, talk about today is, um, the anticipated publication of the HEAL trial mm-hmm. in the New England Journal of Medicine. Big the title of the yeah, that was that was a long. Can you waiting. add in a drum roll? Can you? Could I do drum roll? Probably. <laughs> oh yeah, you got to keep one that that one on hand for more yeah. often use. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, so the the title of the paper is "Trial of Erythropoietin for Hypoxic Ischemic Encephalopathy." In newborns, the first author is Yvonne Wu, who is uh, from California. It's a it's a large collaboration of investigators, obviously. And Dr. Wu had was the first author on the most recent evidence um, looking at 
HIE and EPO, but I didn't know she was a neurologist. I thought she was a neonatologist. So now you know. Now I know. <laughs> anyway, it's 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 great. Um, so anyway, the background information is um, pretty straightforward. Obviously, I'm always fascinated by the statistics. Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy affects more than 10,000 infants each year in the U.S., one to three per 1,000 births, and accounts for 22% of neonatal deaths worldwide. It's like it's extraordinary. So we're just looking for every little thing to augment therapeutic hypothermia. Right. In the background, obviously, they mentioned Dr. Wu's uh, paper where they looked at a phase, they did a phase two trial that looked at using 1,000 units per kilo of EPO versus placebo and looking at MRI. And we reviewed actually that paper on the Neonatology Review podcast when we did the not too long ago or the week on uh, ESAs. So the question that the HEAL trial was trying to answer was, um, it was it was a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial to determine the safety and efficacy of high-dose erythropoietin in conjunction with therapeutic hypothermia for neuroprotection in newborn infants with HIE. Um, the study uh, included babies who were born at 36 weeks or more that had one or more signs of perinatal depressions, perinatal depression. This included an APGAR score of less than five at 10 minutes, cardiopulmonary resuscitation received beyond 10 minutes of age, a pH of less than seven or a base deficit superior to 15, moderate or severe encephalopathy according to a SARNAT criteria present at one to six hours of age, and then the receipt obviously of passive or active of passive or active therapeutic hypothermia that was started within six hours after birth and was continued for a duration of 72 hours. The exclusion criteria were pretty straightforward. Birth weight less than 1,800 grams, head circumference less than 30 centimeters, so, so microcephaly, genetic or congenital condition affecting neurodevelopment, a hematocrit of more than 65%. That's actually a great board review question. Mm-hmm. If you're... If you're a fellow, try to figure out why they excluded these babies. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to say more. Parents considering redirection to palliative care. Encephalopathy attributed to a postnatal event, so not something that was around the time of delivery. Uh, Guardian with diminished cognitive capacity. I think that was very nice to mention that. And a surviving twin undergoing therapeutic hypothermia. Mm. And then the anticipation that the child would not be available um, at two years of age. The intervention um, was uh, the receipt of erythropoietin at a dose of 1,000 units per kilo or an equal volume of saline for the placebo group. And this was given IV before 26 hours of age at, um, at, uh, within the first 26 hours and at two days, three days, four days, and seven days. So a total of five doses. The primary outcome of the study was death or neurodevelopmental impairment of any severity at 22 to 36 months of age. Neurodevelopmental impairment was defined as either having cerebral palsy, a gross motor function classification system level of at least one, and a cognitive score on the Bailey of less than 90. I was Mm -hmm. so happy to see that because my mentor and I, Dr. Charlie Bauer, we were always so frustrated with the fact that the you get like the belly three is very generous, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. P- kids score much higher on the belly three than they used to on the belly two, and by using um, 
by using certain cutoffs, you can you can always find that there's cognitive outcomes that are very very good. So by using a cognitive score of less than ninety um, to be defined as uh, yeah as cognitive impairment was interesting mm-hmm. because they set the bar pretty high. Uh, secondary outcomes included death, cerebral palsy, uh, GMF 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 CS level. Uh, cognitive and language score in the BLE3. And then they had a four-level ordinal outcome consisting of death, moderate or severe nodal mental impairment, mild impairment, or no impairment. Uh, they, re- they reported the parental reports of seizure, vision impairment, and hearing loss, behavioral abnormalities, and obviously MRI findings that were done at about four to six days after birth when possible. The study, finally, one more piece of information was um, they were based on a modified intention-to-treat approach um, once randomized, always analyzed. But in this case, the babies had to have received at least one dose of EPO and then uh, they were analyzed. So randomization plus one dose of EPO. Any questions, Daphne, so far about the methods? No, so far so good. Okay. So the results were as follows. 500 infants were included in this modified intention-to-treat analysis, 257 in the, in the erythropoietin group, 243 in the placebo group. The evaluation of efficacy at 22 to 36 months of age included 93.4% of the EPO group and 91.4% of the placebo group. Um, I think the COVID sort of threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing, so they had to mm-hmm. extend their original window, but nonetheless, they, they captured most of these babies. Okay, let's look in the results. So the primary outcome, death or neurodevelopmental impairment at 22 to 36 months of age uh, occurred in 52.5% in the EPO group compared to 49.5% in the placebo group with a relative risk of 1.03 and a confidence interval of 0.86 to 1.24, p-value 0.74, no significant difference in the primary outcome. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Uh, death occurred in 14%, 14.4% of the EPO group versus 11.5% of the placebo group. That too was not significantly different. Neurodevelopmental impairment occurred in 43.8% in the EPO group, 42.3% in the placebo group, also not statistically significant. Mm-hmm. The results of the four-level ordinal outcome uh, measure, i.e., Death, moderate or severe neurodevelopmental impairment, mild impairment or no impairment did not differ materially according to the trial groups. The percentage of children with a high externalizing behavior score was 7.2% in the EPO group, 1.5% in the plus in the placebo group. And um, that was statistically significant. Mm-hmm. There were no appreciable difference between there were no appreciable between group differences in brain injury score on MRI, the severity of brain injury, or the pattern of brain injury. And so the trial concludes by saying that multiple high doses of erythropoietin administered during the first week of age to newborns undergoing therapeutic hypothermia for moderate or severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy did not result in a lower risk of death or no other mental impairment than placebo. Basically, um, shooting down a little bit the hopes that we had based mm-hmm. on the preliminary data that EPO could be uh, of value to these babies in terms of uh, this primary outcome. So, an unfortunate event, an unfortunate result for the HIE community that uh, is seeing one more potential agent 
fade, but a very good study that helps us uh, narrow the the medications and the interventions we're giving babies, uh, especially since it's not really showing to be too much uh, of, of benefit. Yeah, I you know we're we're still pretty early in our careers, right? Admittedly, but it it really felt like this collective community sigh of disappointment, right? When this came out just a few, yeah. just, just a week ago. So, yeah, it is what it is, but that's the heel trial, uh, mm-hmm. a long awaited, long awaited. Yeah, that's trial. right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thanks for reviewing that buddy. Um, <laughs> I am going to take us in a little bit of a different route here. Um, and talk about this article, antibiotic exposure prevents acquisition of beneficial metabolic functions in the preterm infant gut microbiome. Uh, nice long title for us this, this uh, evening. <laughs> uh, lead author, Shu, um, in the journal Microbiome. Good for you for finding this in Microbiome. I think you're the one who found it. I found it? Oh, good for me. For <laughs> Uh, and this was done uh, in collaboration with the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So what they wanted to look at was um, specifically postnatal antibiotic um, administration. Did it affect the microbiome both in um, diversity of flora and in the metabolic function? So this was a prospective cohort study. Um, the inclusion criteria were babies less than 36 weeks postmenstrual age with a birth weight of less than 2,000 grams. And the intervention was uh, obtaining um, samples at one week and at three weeks of age um, from babies in a variety of sites. So they looked at um, the skin um, in the axilla uh, they looked at the groin skin and then um, the gut flora. They looked at stool samples. Mm-hmm. So uh, the baseline characteristics, they had 133 stool samples and 253 skin samples um, uh, collected, again, between uh, for 68 infants born at less than 36 weeks postmenstrual age and a birth weight less than 2,000 uh, grams. And they collected these samples at one week and at three weeks of age. The median birth weight was 1,384 grams and the median gestational age was 30.5 weeks. The other things uh, to note, 86.8% of these babies received maternal antibiotics um, within 72 hours prior to birth. 32.4 received these postnatal antibiotics. So these are our antibiotic exposed group. I thought that was pretty good, 32%. Uh, and 46 uh, or 46 infants, 67.6% did not receive any postnatal antibiotics in the first two weeks. Um, the differences uh, for the baseline groups, the antibiotic naive group um, was statistically significantly a little bit older, um, mean gestational age of 31 and five weeks compared to 28 and five weeks. Otherwise, there's no difference in um, the categories, collected birth weight, race, uh, rates of C-section, diet, meaning where they breastfed, um, maternal antibiotic exposure, um, and specimen collection time in days. Most infants in this study were fed human milk during the study period, 97%. Isn't that great? That's Mm -hmm. great. 
So then they were looking again at the primary outcome to really look at the diversity of the flora. So the team found that all three body sites examined um, that in in the antibiotic naive group, um, so didn't get postnatal antibiotics, but may have gotten maternal antibiotic um, exposure. The number and diversity of genera increased from week one to week three. Um, so they describe this as the maturing of the, the gut flora by increasing diversity. Um, similarly, a comparison of samples at week one and week three postnatal age um, received, revealed maturation and differentiation at all three body sites. And at week one, samples from the three body sites were more closely clustered together, so they looked more similar. By week three, the microbial composition had become more distinct across the three sites. And um, the composition of groin skin microbiome was much more similar to gut microbiome than was the axillary skin microbiome, which is a good reminder that the skin uh, around the diaper area has a lot of those uh, uh, bacteria around it. And then the composition at each body site at week three was distinct from composition at week one. Um, so a lot of changes happening. And then they wanted to look specifically about which types of bacteria. So among the genera that significantly changed from week one to week three, Clostridium demonstrated the most significance in abundance in week three after accounting for um, potential confounders, gestational age, maternal antibiotics, root of delivery, and infant diet. Several other genera, Klebsiella, uh, Serratia, and um, uh, E. coli were also significantly increased. Conversely, the staph species demonstrated the greatest decrease in abundance from week one to week You said staph species? Yes. Okay. That was your question? Yeah, that was my question. I thought I misheard. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure the Staphylococcus species. Okay. That's right. Um, and then they wanted to look at specifically the contribution of gestational age to these differences in microbiome at week one and week three in um, these antibiotic naive infants. So remember, we're still talking about babies who did not have any postnatal antibiotic exposure. Can I clarify that then? Because I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you this question. So my understanding of the methods that you described are mm -hmm. that they compared two groups of infants, Some one of them that was quote unquote naive, meaning they didn't receive antibiotics. Right. And another one where the babies were exposed to antibiotics. Postnatal antibiotics, but some babies in each group got maternal antibiotics. And, and they could, exactly, right? That's the one thing I wanted to clarify. They right. did not have control over the maternal antibiotic administration. Correct. Okay. And then well, the, question, the last guess, question. Theoretically, they didn't have control over any <laughs> antibiotic administration, but what I would have liked to have seen is a separate group that had no antibiotic None exposure. None at all. Right. And, then, and, and that then, was not a group. And the antibiotic naive group didn't get antibiotics all the way through because they looked at it at week one and week three, you said, right? Correct. So Correct. even at week three, they were still naive. Correct. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was that's what I was looking for was I wanted to see the babies who got no mm. antibiotic exposure because that's something we were discussing this week with board review about maternal yeah. antibiotic um, like they, if they could have stratified the data even further into right. subgroups, yeah, fair enough. That's right. And they did have that information because they did um, 
they did say like in this uh, um, small analysis where they were looking at the um, the different types of bacteria that they did account for maternal antibiotics when they looked at the type of bacteria. Okay. okay. Clear yeah, yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. <laughs> um, so going back to what was the effect of gestational age. So they found diversity and overall composition of the microbiome was not significantly different between infants born at the 28 to 32 weeks compared with 33 to 36 weeks gestational age, whereas postnatal age had a more significant impact on the microbiome composition than just the overall gestational age. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then they did look at gender differences, and um, they found that only one time point um, with a significant difference based on gender was the groin at one week. So not a lot of difference there. And then they wanted to look at the antibiotic exposed groups. So again, these are babies who got postnatal antibiotics. Um, fortunately, the duration and intensity was generally short, they say, quote unquote. Indeed, um, the 22 infants that received antibiotics, 72% uh, received less than 48 hours of ampingent and predominantly during the first three days of age. Um, so I thought that was actually pretty good antibiotic stewardship. Um, mm -hmm. But they still saw a difference. So stool samples showed a decrease in diversity during the first and third weeks, and skin samples from the groin demonstrated decreased diversity by the third week. Um, there were no significant differences in the diversity of microbiota from the axilla from week one to week three. Overall, there was decreased differentiation of the gut microbial composition in the antibiotic-exposed infants compared to the antibiotic-naive infants. Um, so basically that antibiotic treatment showed a shift in the microbial composition, basically in the complete opposite direction relative to changes seen with the typical maturation that accompanies postnatal age. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. I love um, these microbiome papers because they show you those colorful images of the bacteria and how they change over time and in different sites. Um, so definitely something to take a look at. They also looked at the um, genera that differed between the microbial composition of these antibiotic exposed um, infants. And again, accounted for gestational age, antibiotics, breast milk, and delivery mode. Um, and in stool samples, they had a different types of bacteria. They had uh, uh, Sphingomonas, Acidivorax, and Canada were significantly enriched in the antibiotic exposed group, whereas um, bacteria like uh, Blauchia, Streptococcus, Enterococcus, and the Staphylococcus were significantly more abundant in the antibiotic naive infants in the first mm -hmm. week after birth. At week three, no genus was significantly higher in abundance in the antibiotic exposed infants, um, while several, Clostridium, Clostroides, Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, and Blauchia were significantly increased in the antibiotic-naive infants at three weeks after birth. So basically, antibiotic exposure um, really uh, decreased the diversity, resulted in a dom they called a domination of the gut microbiome by a small number of bacteria uh, genera, both at one week and week three. And in these antibiotic-treated babies, E. coli and Klebsiella were the dominant bacteria at all time points. Um, they also looked at these metabolic pathways. Um, and basically, the 
data is similar. There was a significant change in the distribution of metabolic pathways in the preterm infant between week one and week three in those antibiotic naive infants, um, which showed this kind of maturation and increasing metabolic capacity um, in postnatal age when they didn't get antibiotics. But the change um, from week one to week three in these antibiotic exposed infants was not significant. So they did not demonstrate this uh, same maturation of metabolic functional capacity. Other interesting results, there were two neonates in the study that developed neck, and both of them were in the antibiotic exposed group. I should say developed neck during the study period. So um, this study adds to the literature that even very short, um, early antibiotic exposure changes the gut microbiome and metabolic function. Yeah, I'm mesmerized by this figure six, which looks cool. like, yeah, I mean, it looks like a colorblind test, but you That's can right. see so well how the diversity is just changing, impacted. Yeah, so much. Yeah. yeah. This is Monday's tweet already. That's I'm right. already committing that to Monday's tweet. So That's good. A, an eye catcher. <laughs> yeah. All right. Your turn. Okay. My turn. Um, I'm taking you to JAMA. JAMA? JAMA PEDS? Maybe JAMA peds. So this paper is called Associations Between Prenatal Urinary Biomarkers of Phthalate Exposure and Preterm Birth, a Pooled Study of U 16 U.S. Cohorts. It is published in JAMA peds. First author is Barrett Welsh. So what's the, what's the background there? The group who wrote the paper says that while um, the underlying risk factors for most preterm birth are unknown, exposure to environmental chemicals like phthalates may play a role. Phthalates are synthetic chemicals used in everyday consumer products, such as personal care items and food processing or packaging. So it's really pretty ubiquitous, actually. Mm -hmm. And exposure can occur through uh, many sources, including household dust, diet, personal care products like cosmetic. And consequently, phthalate exposure, like we said, uh, is something that pregnant uh, individuals could really uh, be exposed to a significant level during the pregnancy. So the question they pose is, can we look at pulling some individual level data from 16 prospective studies conducted in the U.S. to examine whether there's an association between prenatal urinary biomarkers of phthalate exposure and preterm birth. Preterm birth. So they systematically reviewed the literature to identify epidemiologic studies conducted in the U.S. with data on urinary phthalate metabolites quantified during pregnancy and gestational age at delivery. They focused and I quote, they focused on U.S. studies uh, to facilitate generalizability of results to the U.S. general population. So this was intended for the U.S. audience, which experiences relatively high levels of phthalate exposure and high rates of preterm birth. So preterm birth, sure, I was not really aware that we were more highly exposed to phthalate in this mm -hmm. country. So... Um, all studies prospectively enrolled participants during pre-pregnancy or pregnancy and all participants had live birth between 1983 and 2018. Um, they, um, they, they had a close relationship with all the different authors of the cohort and the number of cohorts and the specific cohorts they worked with were actually filtered based on how were they able to actually get data sharing agreements and so on and so forth. You can read more about that in the methods. 
Preterm birth for the purpose of the study was defined as a delivery before 37 weeks of gestation. And sadly enough, uh, and that's an important point and probably an important limitation, they, they, were, they did not have access to the information that would explain why a mother, if had to deliver early, why they delivered early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the end, the analytic sample included a total of about 6,045 participants. So how did they make sure that the phthalate exposure assessment was consistent? So all participants provided urine samples during pregnancy for quantification of phthalate monoester metabolites. Urinary phthalate metabolites are the preferred biomarkers of phthalate exposure and are highly stable in the urine. And that's why it's, 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 this is the mode in which it is used to be, to be measured. Uh, all the studies that they included used the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, or some form of CDC-developed method um, and targeted the same metabolites as the CDC biomonitoring program. So this really made sure that all the studies that they were pulling from were consistent in the way that this was measured. And I really do not have the strength to read the 11 metabolites that uh, yeah, no. based on the bill. Yeah. So it's, they're there. They're impossible to pronounce, but they, they, they list them in the methods. So in terms of the results, it was quite impressive. And that's the reason why we're bringing up this study. The overall study population consisted, as we said, of over 6,000 pregnant individuals and of whom 9% delivered preterm. Which is kind of it's always cool, right? Because that's what mm-hmm. right that's what uh, that's the, what we the say. NLP, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Participant characteristics were similar between individuals who delivered term and individuals who delivered preterm. Concentrations of urinary phthalate metabolites included for analysis were detectable in ninety six percent or more of urine samples. Wow, baffling! I know. Yeah, I mean, and that's just the stuff we're peeing out. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> So, in terms of the association with preterm birth, regression analysis showed that higher concentrations of most phthalate metabolites were associated with slightly higher odds of preterm birth. After covariate adjustment, there was a 12 to 16% higher odds of preterm birth associated with an IQR interquartile range increase in urinary concentration of they, they, they list four metabolites, the MBP, the monoisobutyl phthalate, the MECPP, and the MCPP. So um, 12 to 16% when these metabolites uh, that's no, That's a big number. Wait. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> that's a the big ninth- number. And sorry, those four metabolites are not the ones they put on the outside of stuff. It's not, it doesn't say that they're those metabolites free. An IQR increase, IQR stands for interquartile range. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep using IQR. An IQR increase in the mixture of nine phthalic metabolites was associated with a 25% higher odds of preterm birth, although the confidence interval included the null. So, um, yeah, quite impressive. And then they did this um, hypothetical um, evaluation to see if, let's say, you were to reduce your exposure to phthalates, what would that mean in terms of preterm birth? And so they said that hypothetical interventions to reduce the phthalate metabolite mixture were estimated to prevent a mean of 2 to 32 preterm births per 1,000 live births. And they have this graph Mm. 
figure two of the paper, where they basically give you the estimated preterm births prevented per 1,000 live birth. So, and if you do a 10% reduction, you reduce 1.8 per 1,000 birth. If you do a 40% reduction, it's 8.3. If you do a 70% reduction, 18.3. A 90% reduction, let's say you try to go phthalate-free, it's like a 32% reduction per 1,000 live birth. So crazy. And so in this, yeah, yeah you were going to say just, something? But they, didn't, but they don't tell us how to do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I was looking for that. And so the conclusion of the analysis is that in this pooled analysis of these 16 prospective U.S. studies, higher concentration of several urinary phthalate metabolites in pregnancy were associated with preterm birth. These findings highlight the need for public health and policy measures, yeah. and that's damn right, to reduce phthalate mm-hmm. exposure among pregnant individuals. So um, the the one question that I guess I want to continue discussing is, in the in the discussion, the, what you might be wondering is, how is that mediating one and the other? Is this just a statistic, statistical association, or is there p- potentially a mechanism? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be very upfront. I am really not an expert in this field, and I'm reading this like most of you all from as, a, as an outsider. And so I don't yeah, know, but the consumer, authors... right? yeah. The authors do suggest that the association of talent metabolites with preterm birth may be mediated by oxidative stress and inflammation at the maternal fetal interface, and that some additional mechanisms may include dysregulated trophoblast differentiation and endocrine disruption as phthalate biomarkers have been associated with downregulated expression of placental genes responsible for these processes. So they do venture a little mechanism. But... Um, I don't know. I felt like this is a paper that, you know how like there are papers that you read them and you're like, all right, this changes practice right away. You read this paper and you're like, this should mandate some policy or some some guidance from ACOG, the CDC, because this is, this, is, this is significant. Well, there are lots of things that are associated with preterm birth that we're not fixing as a society, right? So. I know, but this feels like, um, this feels like, you could potentially, I mean, right. It's not like saying, Hey, if you don't drink water, which is like, Hey, how am I supposed to do that? But like, you could potentially correct for that. Right. I'm assuming that if you did an inventory of what you have at home and then you I were a bit, it's mind- everything. you think so? Yeah. Tell us in the, on Twitter people, like, is there a way to go phthalate free? Um, in France, they started to label things that have, uh, they call them uh, endoc- endocrine disruptors, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this this is now added to labels in, in France. So maybe maybe this could be done. But now, like you said. Look, yeah, vinyl flooring, lubricating oils, personal care products like soap, shampoos, hairsprays, polyvinyl chloride plastics. They're used to make products such as plastic packaging, garden hoses, and medical tubing for example. <laughs> yeah, no, medical tubing, we know. We reviewed some of that stuff already That's right. when we like looked it. at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, an interesting paper. Um, I mean, this is, this is like. It's called, there, here, this is this article from, uh, <laughs> it's called uh, phthalates, the everywhere chemical. <laughs> oh, that sucks. <laughs> That's terrible. That's right. Deflating. Okay. That's right. <ay. laughs> okay. Well, Thanks Where for are you that. taking us now? 
Yeah, no words. Uh, I'm going to do this uh, study, uh, this article, Physiologically Based Cord Clamping for Infants That Are 32 and O Weeks Gestation, a Randomized Clinical Trial and Reference Percentiles for Heart Rate and Oxygen Saturation for Infants 35 and O Weeks Gestation. The title is such a mouthful. That's a mouthful. <laughs> this, um, the lead author um, is uh, Shiraz Badurin. Um, and this is coming to us from Australia. So what's the question? The question was, are there changes in the physiologic parameters of the baby? And um, if you did this uh, technique of PBCC, which stands for physiologically based cord clamping. Um, so what that means is you give stimulation to the baby. You basically do the initial steps of resuscitation, including PPV, um, and basically establish that the baby has um, regular spontaneous breathing and a CO2 color change on the um, CO2 detector. Um, this is a non-intubated baby. This is a baby who they put the CO2 detector between the, the mask um, and the, um, the T-piece. So um, basically, you complete resuscitation while the baby um, is still attached to the placenta, and then you uh, clamp the cord. Um, and they wanted to compare this to um, delayed cord clamping, um, which was until uh, greater than two minutes after birth um, and compare it to early cord clamping, which means that basically, and I'll talk to you about the randomization, but basically this baby was randomized immediately after birth. And as soon as that electronic randomization occurred, that they cut the cord. So those. So are hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you said the physiologic is the baby gets resuscitated and you do everything pretty much at the delivery site and, and still connected to the placenta. And then, and then you said delayed cord clamping is two minutes after birth. Yes. So delayed yeah, cord clamping, uh, huh. was, um, yeah. Cause that's, minutes. that's, that's way longer than, I mean, I, I do 30 do. to 30 to 60 seconds. Two minutes is and a in, long time. And in fact, in fact, they said that their normal, quote unquote, delayed cord clamping was 60 seconds. Um, uh, okay. But they were using this deferred uh, cord clamping for two minutes in this observational study arm. Because they, what they basically wanted to do in this observational study arm was compare babies that were still attached to the placenta, but like didn't require resuscitation versus the babies and kind of give them the same time frame. Does that make sense? Got it. I think that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I'll give you some more details and then you'll tell me more if it makes sense. So between July 2018 and uh, May 2021, um, infants born at um, 32 weeks gestation and um, had a pediatrician called to attend the delivery. So these were high-risk delivery is greater than 32 weeks um, gestation. So any reason the pediatrician would be called is they were preterm, they were less than 37 weeks, they had fetal growth restriction, meconium, um, breach, uh, uh, instrumental birth, or an unplanned C-section. That's why they would call the pediatrician. So basically, as soon as the babies were delivered, 
they used a um, electronic uh, randomization sequence um, and they randomized the babies one-to-one within 60 seconds of birth using this um, smartphone uh, link to either this physiologically, hold on, physiologically based cord clamping or um, the early cord clamping. And I'll tell you, the early cord clamping, um, uh, they told us the time to early cord clamping. So the mean time to cord clamping in the early cord clamping arm was 27 to 51 seconds. Just so you know that. So basically, they waited. They just randomized the baby. And whenever the baby was randomized to early cord clamping, that's when they would clamp for that group. And then the babies with PBCC ventilation, um, they looked for um, ventilation being established um, by either positive pressure ventilation or effective spontaneous breathing prior to cord clamping. So they received PPV and they had umbilical cord clamping deferred until two minutes after birth and until 60 seconds after they had color change on the CO2 detector. Um, So for some babies, that was longer than two minutes. For some babies, it was less than two minutes. Um, Infants in the PBCC group who breathed without PPV had their umbilical cords clamped at two minutes after birth. Um, And then non-randomized infants, those infants that were vigorous after initial stimulation so that they weren't going to need um, additional resuscitation, um, were not then randomized to PBCC or ECC, and they had this deferred cord clamping for 120 seconds um, in this observational study arm. And I'll tell you more about that um, later. The primary outcome was mean heart rate between 60 to 120 seconds after birth, which I thought was an interesting time period, um, measured using this three-lead ECG and then extracted from video recordings. Baseline characteristics, they had 508 babies enrolled, 123 babies were randomized, 63 to PBCC and 60 to early cord clamping. The mean gestational age was 39.9 in PBCC and 39.6 in ECC. There were more babies, interestingly, in the PBCC arm who were affected by quote-unquote complications of pregnancy, and that was like a catch-all, hypertensive disorders, diabetes, uh, sepsis, oligohydramnios, antepartum hemorrhage, and placental previa. Um, There were 43% of those babies affected by complications of pregnancy in the PBCC compared to 25% uh, in early cord clamping and 26% in the delayed uh, observational arm. Um, Mm -hmm. I told you cord clamping in the early clamping was 27 to 51 seconds, and the cord clamping occurred at a median of 136 seconds in the PBCC arm, which I thought was pretty good too. Um, they looked at the primary outcome. So the mean heart rate between 60 to 120 seconds after birth was 154 for PBCC and 158 for ECC. So no um, significant difference in heart rate at 60 to 120 seconds after birth. There were also no evidence of difference between study arms in each of the subgroup analyses. So they looked at babies who were 32 to 35 uh, and six weeks gestation. They looked at babies who needed emergency deliveries versus non-emergency deliveries. um, And there was no statistically significant difference. They also looked at 31 secondary outcomes 
And really the only difference they found were that more infants in the PBCC arm received any resuscitation um, compared to the ECC arm. Um, in the ECC arm, uh, infants uh, established regular cries shortly after randomization, did not receive resuscitation, including uh, vigorous stimulation. So they were um, more likely um, to uh, actually not need additional resuscitation. Uh, a higher proportion of the infants in the PBCC arm received PPV, um, and uh, the one potentially positive thing was that respiratory support was initiated sooner in those babies than in the ECC. The median time uh, from birth was 63 seconds versus 93 seconds. Um, no really major other difference. There were no major differences in adverse events like admission to the NICU or first measured temperature. So um, they were really hopeful that they would see a, an improvement in kind of these physiologic parameters, but they just showed no difference. Um, other interesting results. So then they took these non-randomized infants who just got uh, delayed cord clamping without resuscit additional resuscitation for two minutes, and they created this observational study to look at the heart rate and oxygen saturation norms. And we have those, right? They dictate our first 10 minutes in the um, delivery room, even in our NRP. Um, but they wanted to look at this group of babies because they were considered, quote unquote, high risk infants uh -huh. as compared to the norms um, that we currently have, which are really for low risk term infants. So um, I will leave that for people to go take a look at the heart rate and saturation plots. What I would have liked to have seen is this third group be plotted against the first two groups um, in, in the, the earlier graphs. Right. Um, but they're all there for people to look at. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is a bit controversial, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there, there's, there's this belief that if we could perform all the steps of resuscitation at the on the sterile field or, or almost right um mm -hmm. things would be better and now this is showing that maybe maybe you don't need to <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so interesting um yeah. all right i have to i have to, we have to get moving because we have a few more papers mm -hmm. and uh, i would like to get to them and you have one more after that correct mm -hmm. okay so let me go to the next one then um this one is called bronchodilator responsiveness and disynapsis in bronchopulmonary dysplasia. First author is our good friend, Leif Nealon, and uh, co-authors are our friends from Nationwide Children's Hospital. This is obviously from Columbus, Ohio, and this is in the uh, ERJ Open. So lots of stuff to define, even in the title. The first thing we need to talk about is this group out of Nationwide has published in the past the possibility of performing infant pulmonary function testing during the NICU hospitalization. And when they did this, this study looking at pulmonary function testing in the NICU in patients with BPD, they were able to actually define several phenotypes of babies with BPD. And these are uh, obstructive phenotype, restrictive phenotype, or mixed phenotype. So, I mean, if you remember pulmonary physiology, not really earth shattering, but interesting that they were able to define that mm -hmm. in, a, in a paper uh, that was published in pediatrics uh, that was called infant pulmonary function testing and phenotype in severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And that was published in what year? 2018. So 
The term I was not so familiar with was this disynaptic long growth and and what does that mean? And so basically this refers to the non-proportional growth of airways and lung resulting in a relatively small airways for lung size. Does that make sense? Meaning your mm-hmm. conducting airways don't grow as much as your parenchyma. And so basically there's this differential growth of airways and lung parenchyma. I was not familiar with that until this paper came around and I had to look this up a little bit more. And why they're using that is because it has been suggested that disynapsis ratio can be used as a non-invasive method of describing the relationship between the airway caliber and lung size, where the smaller the disynapsis ratio, the greater the disynaptic lung growth. So what are they trying to do here? So they tested the hypothesis that in infants with BPD, and who were being assessed for their response to bronchodilators, which is another study that they did, that those babies with bronchodilator response would have a smaller disynaptic ratio than non-responders, meaning Mm. that that their disproportional lung growth would be more pronounced. In other words, infants with bronchodilator response would have relatively smaller airways relative to their lung size than non-responsive infants. And I think you may say, oh, Ben, you're just like nerding out on some BPD stuff. Why is that relevant to us? Um, yeah, and the super truth, relevant. So, right. So I guess the overarching theme of what I believe these guys at uh, these guys and gals at, at, at Nationwide are trying to do is trying to be able to define the patient characteristics of these babies with BPD, right? We tend to put them all in one big bucket. Oh, you have severe mm-hmm. BPD. But they all they are differences between each one. And right now, we have a systematic approach where we give them a few sets of medications, and that's mm-hmm. really it. But they have individual profiles that could help us maybe to tailor their, their treatment. And that's interesting. And that's probably going to help us be more comfortable in the management of these babies because i mean even if i enjoy managing babies with bpd it is terrifying you don't know how they're going to respond to anything and it's they're complicated they don't get better quickly so it is very tough the patients in so the study was designed as follows the subject from this cohort were actually a subset of a cohort that was described in the pulmonary function test publication in pediatrics that i just mentioned who had bronchodilator response testing done And so briefly, what did they do? Infants who were hospitalized in their NICU with a primary diagnosis of BPD were referred to their first infant pulmonary function testing between 2003 and 2015. Uh, These babies basically, what, let me actually, yeah. So I'll talk. So in order to do infant pulmonary function testing, obviously, right? If you remember adult pulmonary function testing, you, you you breathe into a mouthpiece and they stop the airflow and, and they try to measure your lung volume. But because babies cannot follow command, they actually have to sedate them with chlorohydrate and mm. they undergo rapid volume, uh, they, under, they, un, they undergo raised volume rapid thoracic compression spirometry and body plethysmography measurements as they've described in prior papers. That sounds so, scary. It's, it is scary. And so then yeah. you may wonder, why would you even do that? So they are pretty clear that in their BPD unit, they do refer these babies to infant pulmonary testing when they're kind of getting stuck, meaning they're trying everything and the babies fail to make significant progress. And so 
when they are stuck, they then resort to these pulmonary function testing to try to get a better understanding of where they could effectuate some 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 positive momentum, right? Um, and this is not done uh, lightly. The decision to go for IPFT is made by consensus of the multidisciplinary BPD team. So they have a lot of eyes looking at this and they think carefully about who goes and who doesn't. Um, and they estimate that the cohort that, that this cohort represents about 15%, one five of all BPD patients admitted to their BPD unit during the time frame. So it's not the majority either. Bronchodilator response testing. So basically what they would do is that infants were randomly assigned to receive, um, I'm sorry, um, to receive uh, albuterol. And and the way they do this, give me one second. And so albuterol is held for eight hours prior to testing. And after pre-bronchodilator pulmonary function testing is completed, they give two puffs of albuterol every two minutes until there's a 10% increase in heart rate uh, or a maximum of eight puffs are given. And then pulmonary function testing is repeated. They define a bronchodilator response as a 10% increase or more in FEV 0.5, meaning forced expiratory volume in less than half, than half a second, which represents two or more standard deviation above the normative mean for change in FEV 0.5 in infants. Um, in terms of the, the disynapsis ratio, the disynapsis ratio is calculated from the forced expiratory flow at 50% or forced vital capacity using an equation that's in the chart, that's in the, the doc, in the manuscript. You can look it up. I'm not going to, you're going, I'm going to lose you guys if I, if I go over that. It's not complicated. Okay. The bottom line is the disynaptic ratio is inversely related to disynaptic lung growth, i.e. the smaller the, di- the ratio, the more disynapsis you have, the more you have this, mm-hmm. um, this, um, I'm losing my words. I'm tired. I apologize. This, um, differential growth of airway and lung size. Okay. So. Let's go into the results. They had 93 patients that underwent bronchodilator response testing. 63% met criteria for a response to a bronchodilator, and they were called quote-unquote responders. 37% didn't respond to bronchodilators, and they were termed non-responders. So that's not insignificant right there. At the time of pulmonary function testing, there were no difference between groups in terms of postmenstrual age, length, weight, type of respiratory support. The breakdown of BPD, most of them had severe BPD, 62, 62% had grade 3 BPD, 24 had grade 2, 2% had grade 1. They were using the Jensen criteria. Uh, the phenotypes, uh, 51% were obstructive, 41% had a mixed BPD, and 9% were restrictive. They were more infants with moderate to severe obstruction in the responder group than in the non-responder group. And what you will see is that the responders have a more... Um, have a more serious, I guess, profile. Mm-hmm. So responder had lowers, <clears throat> responders had lower FEV 0.5 and FEV 0.5 over FVC than non-responders. The responders had greater indices of hyperinflation on the pulmonary function testing, and the median disynapsis ratio in responder was significantly smaller than the median ratio in the non-responders, meaning their disynapsis was actually worse um, than the kids who did not respond, suggesting greater disynaptic lung growth in responders than non-responders. There was also, um, there was no correlation between the disynaptic ratio and postmenstrual age. 
And when they were looking at other relationship, looking at the disynapsis ratio in FEV 0.5, which is basically FEV1 that we are familiar with in adults and older children, but it's in infants, it's FEV 0.5. Using linear regression, they found a significant correlation between the disynaptic ratio and FEV 0.5. They also found a significant relationship between the disynaptic ratio and total lung capacity. And using, um, and that's, that's, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to stop here. Um, So the conclusion were that these findings demonstrate that there are pulmonary function test parameters associated with bronchodilator response and responders have evidence of greater disynaptic lung growth than non-responders. And I think, again, uh, all the patients that we have who have severe BPD in our unit, for example, are being tried on inhaled medications. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. We just we just do it. We hope that it helps. And it's interesting to see that there are ways to learn more about your patients, even when they're on these extremes of, 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 this, of BPD and this disease, in order to actually try to optimize even there. I think this is, this is, this is a degree, I guess this is my takeaway. This is a degree of excellence in care that inspires me to uh-huh. deliver better care, right? I mean, you could just say, well, I have some severe BPD. I'm just giving him some bronchodilators and I'm already doing pretty well. But to know that there are people who are thinking even harder on all this is quite fascinating. And so, yeah, this is this is very neat. This is very inspiring stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's just over and over and over again how important individualized medicine is, right? And even for any, any of the diseases we treat, any of the pathologies we treat, they... There are these phenotypes, right, that are just Mm -hmm. we haven't totally elucidated, and I think one day we'll totally direct our management. So this is a step in that direction. Absolutely. Um, Okay. I have a paper. I know we're getting short on time, but I have this paper that has also generated quite a bit of uh, buzz, so it's an important paper for us to review. Um, It's entitled Associations of Maternal Milk Feeding with Neurodevelopmental Outcomes at Seven Years of Age in Former Preterm Infants. Um, The lead author is um, Dr. Mandy Belfort from uh, the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, This is published in JAMA Network Open. So they wanted to look at the associations between maternal milk feeding and cognitive, academic, and behavioral outcomes of preterm infants born at less than 33 weeks gestation. Um, You know, we feel pretty good that um, maternal or breast milk exposure um, changes these outcomes, but most of the studies have been done in the full-term infant. And so that's why they wanted to study these babies, and they managed to follow this cohort to seven years. So this cohort um, study is actually part of a larger study, the the DINO randomized clinical trial, um, which was looking at DHEA DHA for improvement of neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, so then this was a subset of the, the groups they looked at, um, again, maternal or milk, mom's own milk exposure. So they wanted to look at milk dose uh, in like 25 ml per kilo increments and uh, overall milk duration over um, a NICU admission. 
Okay. Uh, the primary outcomes was looking at overall intellectual ability. They used the, the Weschler abbreviated scale of intelligence, probably the most common used in developmental uh, studies, especially looking um, at the NICU population. They wanted to look at the full scale IQ and verbal and performance IQ subscales, but they also wanted to look at academic achievement and behavior because this is a place where preterm children also um, perform uh, more poorly than full term children. So they looked at um, the wide range achievement test. They looked at symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder using the Connors third edition. Um, they looked at the strengths and difficulties questionnaire and executive function um, was evaluated using the behavioral rating inventory of executive function. So they also looked at a bunch of covariates. They looked at income, educational level, occupation, race, smoking status, alcohol use, number of people living in the home. Um, they had people pour through the medical records looking at parity, antenatal steroid exposure, um, a lot of um, neonatal characteristics, uh, sex, birth weight, gestational age, multiple birth, uh, and then a bunch of neonatal uh, diagnoses, neck, BPD, sepsis, uh, severe IVH, um, and PVL all potential um, confounders when we're looking at neuro neurodevelopmental outcome. So from Dino Trial's original cohort of 657 infants, they um, excluded 20 participants who died before seven years of age and 51 participants who are not able to be evaluated at seven years of age. So in total, they had 586 participants remaining. Um, infants were born at a mean birth weight of um, 1,323 grams um, and a gestational age of 29.6 weeks. So we'll just get into the, the meat of things. So they wanted to look at, I told you, um, IQ. Um, and so they found that a higher intake of milk in the NICU and a longer duration of milk feeding was associated with higher full-scale verbal and performance IQ scores. When adjusted for clinical and social variables, this did attenuate most of the associations, though um, they still remained positively association with uh, performance IQ. And you like these, um, so you're going to appreciate this, but they said that there was an increase in performance IQ by 0.67 points for every 25 mLs per kilo uh, per day increment um, that a baby received in the NICU. Similarly, a higher intake of maternal milk in the NICU and a longer duration of maternal milk feeding were associated with higher reading standard spelling, and math computation scores when unadjusted. And again, when adjusted for all the potential confounders, the estimates of academic achievement were attenuated, but still um, positively associated with higher reading standard and math computation scores. And the longer duration of milk feeding was also associated with uh, higher spelling scores. Again, for example, each additional intake of 25 mLs per kilo per day of maternal milk in the NICU, um, the reading standard score was 1.14 points higher. The math computation score was 0.76 points higher. Um, with adjustment, longer duration of maternal milk feeding was still associated with higher reading standard, 0.33 points uh, per month of milk received. Math computation was 0.3 points per month of milk received and spelling 0.31 points per month uh, received. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and they do talk about that for people who are less familiar with the studies uh, they uh, that you may say, are they statistically significant um, or are they clinically significant? But for example, one point on the reading uh, score per each additional 25 mLs per kilo per day of milk translates to approximately six to seven points uh, potentially when multiplied over the typical daily intake, um, which uh, is a clinically significant um, change in outcomes. Um, they also, I told you, wanted to evaluate ADHD symptoms and higher milk intake in the NICU was associated with a lower Connors ADHD score. So a lower score on the Connors um, is a good thing, theoretically. It means you have less of these uh, ADHD type symptoms. Um, was not, uh, there was no significant association with the brief or the SDQ scores. The other interesting findings, um, these were great tables. I wish that they were graphs. I'd love to see them in graph form because I think they would be really impressive. Um, but the effects um, were even greater for babies born less than 30 weeks of gestation. And you can see um, the more preterm you are, the greater effect. Um, so I thought that was uh, really interesting. The only time they didn't see that, the Connors uh, for the ADHD scores were actually strongest among infants born at greater than 29 weeks of age. They also looked at uh, a variety of factors like uh, babies who were SGA and maternal milk intake was associated uh, with better performance IQ for non-SGA infants only. I thought that was interesting. They wanted to look at effect by sex or the dyno treatment group. So with the receipt of DHA, and they didn't see any difference um, with those modifications. Um, so the takeaway is that like in term infants um, in this cohort, cohort of preterm infants, um, milk feeding during the neonatal hospitalization and after discharge were associated with better uh, performance IQ, academic achievement, a reduction in ADHD symptoms, especially for those babies less than 30 weeks gestation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great paper. I just wonder how many more paper. I mean, these the, the I have a feeling that the 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 benefits of breast milk are well established at this point, mm-hmm. and I think the authors in the background are saying um, that some domains are not reliably. Uh, accessible until school age. So this is where they're really trying to create a space for them to publish this paper. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I have not surprised by the findings and you always, you always wonder though, the confounding effects of parental dedication saying the mother who made the effort to really provide breast milk to come to feed the baby and so on and so forth maybe a parent who will be really behind their kids in during school years and maybe they will perform it better there's no way to correct for all these things and it doesn't negate the benefits of breast milk in my opinion based on all the evidence that is out there already so um yeah Yeah. And I mean, when we talk about confounders, right? So there are so many things that make it possible for certain families to provide breast milk versus families who can't provide breast milk, right? Above effort um, that we just can't totally account for in the literature. But um, I think, I think 
we know that more breast milk is better, but the dose response is cool, right? Because our, mm-hmm. our, um, our benchmarks are really about like any breast milk. And then like, did you get like a sip of breast milk at discharge when it's really, um, the total daily amount and the length of time makes a difference. Yeah. And so I guess on this note, we should mention that the AP, um, published a policy statement called breast mm-hmm. policy statement breastfeeding and the use of human milk uh, first author is joan younger meek uh, last author is one of my residency mentors lawrence noble uh, who's mm. a phenomenal physician and it's a very nice report and mm-hmm. i don't think there's anything controversial anything that you guys are probably not aware of breast milk and breastfeeding is good and you should support it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, but the the exact terms, just so people know what the hoopla is about, but they, the AAP recommends exclusive breastfeeding for about six months with complimentary food introduction at about six months. Um, and this is the major change. is mutually desired by a family, uh, supports continued breastfeeding until two years or beyond. Or beyond. That's right. So that's the major <laughs> change. And, you know, it, it's a good review on some of the um, challenges with mm-hmm. uh, getting breast milk. So they talk about um, what we can do in the hospital, like what pediatricians can do, what are some of the equity concerns. Um, they talk about uh, the language we use around uh, breastfeeding or chest feeding, um, so it's it's useful to evaluate some of the some of the buzz about the paper is obviously that it doesn't exactly explain how we are going to support uh, pumping and uh, chest feeding people to get this done, right? So yeah, and I think it's it's maybe a good thing that. You just you just have to support because I think if they if they had outlined anything, then you may have find yourself boxed in. I think this leaves all the possibilities on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And I think, it, yeah, I mean it's 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 especially true considering that they are making the recommendation to promote uh, exclusive breastfeeding for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm definitely need to find ways to support mm-hmm. mothers. I mean, I remember when my wife was trying to breastfeed as a med student, like it's, it's hard. Like just, it's mm. so taxing on the, the schedule. The hardest thing I've ever the, done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah, definitely uh, try to, yeah. And I think, I don't know how you take this, but when they say that they recommend, um, can, the AP, it says the AP supports continued breastfeeding along with appropriate complementary food introduced at about mm-hmm. six months. Um, I'm assuming, obviously, this means uh, that if you could um, exclusively breastfed for six months, it would be best. But I also don't think it means that um, your baby is going to be awfully affected if you partially breastfeed for the first six months. So I think I think the maternal well-being has also to be taken into account. I think ideally, I'm taking it from the standpoint of ideally, mm-hmm. Exclusive breastfeeding for six months is what you should aim for. But looking and speaking to parents who who are breastfeeding, it is so hard that I, I also am very conscientious of making sure that these mothers who have needs of their own are not uh, completely ignored as well. And there was a very interesting editorial in JAMA. I don't have it at the top of my head, which talks about this, where 
the pressure of breastfeeding mm-hmm. had some significant negative impact on the mother herself. And so it's a balance at the end of the day. It is a balance. And and any breast milk that can be provided, as you've shown in the last paper you reviewed, right. is already that's beneficial. So yeah. so that's uh yeah, that's that's the way I understood it. And I'm sure people will interpret the data as uh as they wish. But yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is an optimal it's an optimal recommendation if and when we can we can we can do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, we went over time. Uh, remember to grab your CME credits at the end of this episode. You can find that on the on the episode's webpage. And um yeah, there's, there's, yeah, that's really it for today. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna extend the show any longer. Thank you, Daphna, for making the time, and uh, see you guys later this week. All right, bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nikku, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.